Welcome to season two of Access and Opportunity. In this episode, we're excited to invite Tristan Walker to the mic as we explore Making the Cut. As founder and CEO of the health and beauty brand Walker & Company, Tristan is building an empire focused on solving the acute health and beauty problems of multicultural consumers. Tristan has received numerous accolades, including being featured among Fortune Magazine's 40 Under 40 and USA Today's Person of the Year in 2014. He's also worked for industry giants, namely Twitter, Foursquare, and Andreessen Horowitz. I'm excited for Tristan to share his journey of creating products, building networks, and fostering change to create a more equitable and inclusive tech industry. Let's get started. Well, Tristan, thank you so much for being here with us today. Thank you for having me. We are really excited to have this conversation. And, you know, we're trying to elevate the conversation around the lack of access of capital for entrepreneurs of color and for women and for those who are entrepreneurs to give them a bit of a playbook to say, here's how you can get it done. Here's one way you can get it done. So let's jump right in. Frida K. Port Klein was one of our guests last mm -hmm. season. And one of the things that she said is the thing that the larger investor community is missing is that entrepreneurs who live the problem, who understand what the problem is, are the best qualified to actually attack the problem <laughs> and right. be able to build large businesses around it. But she also said that the VC community, the traditional VC community, likes to look at the pedigree and not at the person, which is why they miss my former mm -hmm, point mm -hmm. and her former point. So if you look at your background, you say South Jamaica, Queens, Hotchkiss, Stanford, Foursquare, Andreessen Horowitz, that is a pedigree and a resume made in heaven. Mm -hmm. And one might say, that's why you were able to get this started and be able to be successful. So what would be your rebuttal? Well, I would say that's false. 99% of the folks that I've reached out to didn't give me any money. Wow. In fact, uh, you know, we've been fortunate and blessed uh, to have raised the money that we did. But we've used the same investors every single round. And even to this point, you know, we make millions and millions of dollars in revenue. Uh, mm -hmm. And we still have to prove to other folks that we're solving a very important problem. Yes. Um, so this problem hasn't gone away. I think this is point around authenticity and understanding the problem really authentically is something that has mattered for me. It has mattered for the investors that we have. And unfortunately, there are folks on the other side of the table who neither look like me nor have had the same experience as I do. Mm -hmm. um, so at least when I was going around um, fundraising, the thing that I realized was the minute I started hearing no's is when I knew I was on to something pretty special. Uh, you, you talk about the pedigree, and I was used to hearing yeses a lot, right? Uh, okay. Getting great opportunities to do new things or meeting new people. And it wasn't until I came up with this idea for Walker & Company that folks started to say, mm, you know, I'm, I'm not sure that'll work. Uh, and then I knew. Okay. I was on to something. But that's special. interesting. So what did you think when you started to hear that? Did you think it was because they don't understand the market or they don't see me as an entrepreneur? Sure. Um, so Ben Horowitz at Andreessen Horowitz taught me something that stuck with me for a while. He said, usually, Tristan, what looks like bad ideas are good ideas. Ah. And usually what looks like good ideas are bad ideas. Um, the perfect example of that he likes to give is like Airbnb. You know, who would have ever thought 10 years ago that strangers would have given or rented out their rooms to other strangers? Yes. They've created $30 billion in value on mm -hmm. that premise alone. Mm -hmm. um, you think about Facebook. Who would have thought that folks would have put all of their information on the Internet? 
mm-hmm. hundreds of billions of dollars in value. Um, when I would go out um, kind of talking to folks about big ideas, you know, I wanted to fix childhood obesity. I wanted to fix freight and trucking in the country. Um, you know, I wanted to really rethink how folks thought about play. I'd go to kind of VCs on Sand Hill Road and they'd say, Tristan, that's an amazing idea. Um, and I realized that I was chasing things that they wanted to see in the world. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't until I really authentically thought about the thing that I wanted to see in the world that they didn't understand that I knew I was onto something. And it had nothing to do with my ideas being a bad one. It was just their lack of understanding uh-huh. at the time that I was saying it to show that they hadn't realized it was a good idea yet. Mm-hmm. There are no such thing as bad ideas. It's just bad timing in their eyes, okay. not my own. Okay, so that's that's yeah. an interesting. Let's let's peel that onion a little bit more because how do you get uh, a traditional investor or an institutional investor? Let me just make the category broader. How do you get them to get comfortable learning about something that they don't know? Because most investors will say, "I stick to my knitting," yeah. and if they stick to their knitting, they will never understand this market. Yeah. So, what do you say to them, or how did you convince them to do a little research or to open it up or to start to embrace the idea? Uh, there are a couple of things to keep in mind as an entrepreneur. First, they don't know everything that I know. Second, when you think about venture capitalists, 90% of the things that they invest in do not succeed. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think a lot of entrepreneurs come into this thinking that the VCs know what will work and what will not. Um, So entrepreneurs have to have some faith in their Mm -hmm. understanding of the idea. Mm -hmm. You know, one thing that I realized on my journey, and I got a lot of advice for this, and it really has stuck with me for a while, Ben Horowitz, you know, he gives me all the advice in the world. He said, Tristan, think about the one thing that you feel uniquely qualified to do that no one else in the world can do. Mm -hmm. And it really, really forces you to think about your personal lived experiences. Um, Nobody's lived or walked a mile in my own shoes. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, when I think about Walker & Company, no one's walked down the same retail aisles I have in the way that I've experienced them. I've had the experience in Silicon Valley uniquely as a, you know, a person of color with access to the capital and the network that I've had. I was uniquely positioned to do this at this time, at this moment. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it was hard for me to think of anyone else who could have done it. Now, that doesn't automatically qualify me to raise money. That's just the harsh reality. Yeah. Uh, as much as I want to say to folks that do this, do this, and you'll raise the money, I'd be lying to every single person that I said that to. Really? Because no matter how how good the pedigree is, how great the idea is, what kind of access you have to the money, there's still the huge question mark would be, is your argument? Yeah, the math is not in your favor. Okay. Uh, you know, VCs, especially folks, you think about folks like Andreessen Horowitz, they mm-hmm. invest in 10 companies a year. Right now, this is one of the best VC firms on the planet. Mm-hmm. Um, there are a number who are like that, and when you consider not only the limited number of um, companies that do get this kind of investment, but you think about the number of companies that get the investment and don't succeed, right? Uh, there's a risk aversion, even, yeah. <laughs> right? That's fair. Uh, when you think of kind of this risk-seeking capital, that's mm-hmm. a bit of an irony, right? Um, so, as an entrepreneur, you really have to understand maybe you don't need to raise money as quickly as you think you need to. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe there are ways to limit and narrow the scope of what you're trying to create to build that credibility um, and build the product market fit 
so that now you have customers that you can prove that will enable you to raise the money the next time down the road. So if you don't have the access, uh, but you have the smarts that you have, but you don't have the access, you're saying maybe you take a smaller portion of what the dream looks like where you need less capital. That's right. Put some points on the board and then use those points, that currency of having executed to actually go some go to other doors, if you will. That's right. Uh, to try to raise the capital. Yeah, I mean, I like to think about things as solving my own personal problem. And likely there are 5, 10, 20 other people who share that same core problem. Then it forces me to think, all right, how can I continue to solve this problem for these 20 people? How can I make sure that the experience is world class so that the next 2,000 people that experience my product actually get a better experience than the Mm -hmm. first folks who did? Mm -hmm. Um, And gradually, you start to build credibility. Gradually, you start to build kind of a customer set. And gradually, you find a niche where you can build some semblance of monopoly power, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. You know, I like to say, um, you know, you can have uh, you can have a hundred percent of something that's worth zero dollars. Oh, <laughs> right? absolutely. absolutely. Or you can have a hundred percent of something that's worth ten. Right. Right. Uh, and you really think about how kind of small ideas become big ones. Airbnb after thirty billion dollars in value, it didn't start the way that it is right now. Yes. It started small. Mm-hmm. They got all the news, um, but they focused on the customer. Right. They focused on the insights. And after a while, it clicked. Yeah. And they were able to build that credibility. So tell me, how would somebody think about getting the visibility for the, the product? So mm-hmm. you have the product or you have the process out there. Mm-hmm. You have a VC or you have investors that believe in you. But now you have to actually execute. You have to sell the thing. Yeah. But how does one gain visibility for their product so that people start to pay attention, either want to buy it or in- invest in it? First, you got to build and create something that people want to talk about. Mm-hmm. You have to build and create something that people want to use. You know, we have investors, folks like Magic Johnson, John Legend, Nas, et cetera. And a lot of people ask me, how did I get investment from them? Yes. And I told them, they shop in the same stores I shop in. They walk down the same aisles that I do. They suffer from the same skincare, hair care problems that I do. And I was solving their problems. And they found, wow. No one else is doing this for me. Yeah, but how did you get to them for them to either say, well, let me try this brother's product? For me, it was all about focusing on the product. Um, You know, if you're not focusing on the product and you're focusing on how you get people to talk about a product that no one uses, you're wasting your time, Mm -hmm. right? No. The more you focus on that product, you'd be surprised by how opportunities open for you, right? People are delighted by the experience and the solution, and they're willing to talk and share it with other people. Mm -hmm. Well over half of our customers to this day come via word of mouth. Ah, okay. Because and we're I, solving problems. Yeah, and I always say there's no better sale than your customer making That's the right. sale for That's you. That's right. So you you got a groundswell of people talking about it, and everybody knows somebody, That's and right. before you know it, it it got to their attention, That's and right. they started to use it, and voila. That's right. Okay. I think, you know, there are a lot of uh, entrepreneurs that I'm, you know, fortunate and blessed enough to meet, and they come and kind of ask me for advice, and the first question they ask is, how can I raise money? Yeah. And my first question back is, why do you need to raise money? Yeah. And they never have a good answer for it. Really? It's really interesting, right? Especially the folks who've never raised it before. Yeah. And, you know, folks really don't understand that when you raise money, you have to return it. That's exactly right. Right? You have new growth expectations. Um, there are expectations from folks who are not you, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? That's right. Um, you have to manage those expectations. Not to mention you have to spend the money. Um, and you might not be ready to spend the money, mm-hmm. especially if you haven't even found product market fit yet. Yeah. Um, so raising money is as much a gift 
as it can be a curse for some. Yes. So if I boil this down to a playbook point, understand why you need to raise money, mm-hmm. understand what your sources and uses are going to mm-hmm. be. You know what you hope your sources are going to be, but what? how are you going to use this money to actually grow the business mm-hmm. or advance the business mm-hmm. in some way? Spend time actually building a groundswell of interest mm-hmm. and excitement about what the product is. Don't worry yet about getting the visibility through journalists mm-hmm. or even online or even with the um, celebrities, mm-hmm. if you will. Get it so that it's something that's exciting to people in your community Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and then use their network to actually get word of mouth momentum around it. And then that'll probably give you exposure to, to, quote, the right people that you want using your product. That's right. And I'd I'd almost add you're probably better off raising less than you think you need to. Mm -hmm. Now, it's probably surprising for folks to hear that for me. I've raised $39 million. Yes. And I tell a lot of folks that um, I probably didn't need to raise that money. It's allowed us to grow. It's allowed us to scale. But this idea of um, delivering with constraint yes. and creativity in constraint mm-hmm. will only make you better over the medium and long term. And I can't think of how many amazing businesses have never raised a cent in funding and are worth billions of dollars, right? Yes. And they feel um, kind of much better off by the fact that they've had to deal in that constraint. And people really need to think about once you take that capital in, you have responsibilities to spend that capital, again, at a time you may or may not be ready for it. Yes. Well, I'll have to tell you, as a 31-year Wall Street banker, I'm going to give you the flip side of that yeah, yeah. because often we have given companies advice that have been private companies, don't put yourself in a position to run out of money. Mm. So sometimes the market is just hot. Mm -hmm. And if the money is there and you have a good use for it, Mm -hmm. there's a large argument to say, take it while you can get it. Because, you know, I can remember doing public deals for biotech companies, for example. And that's one of those industries when the windows open, it's open. When the windows closed, it's closed. Investor sentiment is against you. You will have a very difficult time Mm -hmm. raising the money. Mm So when that window's open, get the money. Yeah. All right. Um, not, not to the point, again, where you squander it. And you're right. You do have responsibilities. But I take a, a slight uh, turn on your argument that if you can get it and you can use it wisely. I, I agree it. with you completely. But you got to have cash flow discipline uh, fair. in order to be able we to agree take advantage there. of that. Yeah. And I think that there, there are a lot, especially when you think about early stage yes. um, kind of entrepreneurs who haven't raised money before. They haven't even gotten to the point where they've started to take in cash. Yes. You know, a lot of entrepreneurs will come and ask about how to raise money before they've um, uh, sold their first product. Yes. Okay. So I have an important question. How did you finally close the first deal to get your first capital? Yeah. Like, what did you say that you think convinced them? I do think I know the answer as to why you've had the same investor group every time you've raised <laughs> money. But I'm going to ask you that sure. question too. Um, why? Why not let somebody else in? Why have these guys been willing to double down? And the last part of the question is, what were the points? on the board that you agreed to deliver for these guys to get them convinced. Yeah, so um, by the time I had raised money, folks knew that anything that I was going to do or invest my time in, I was likely to deliver. How did they know that? What Um, had you done? Um, Before that, before I raised my first round of funding, um, I was kind of head of business development for a small startup called Foursquare. I was one of its very first employees, um, definitely the first business hire. I was doing it while I was in business school. Um, You know, I took us from zero merchants on the platform to over a million, zero brands on the platform for tens of thousands. By the time I left, we had 150 employees. 
Um, Andreessen Horowitz was on the board uh-huh. of Foursquare. Um, so I got some visibility yes. um, in my execution. Um, before that, I was one of the first interns at Twitter while I was in business school, too. Um, and I was able to deliver um, um, results, mm-hmm. right? You know, the money just didn't come to me. I proved that I was actually, if I were given it and blessed with it, um, I would kind of treat it well, so mm-hmm. to speak. Um, and even by the time I was ready to raise money, I knew I was going to need to raise money. I'm a consumer packaged goods company, right? Uh, in order to get to where I wanted to be, you got to raise some money. But by the time of my first pitch, I already had designs for my product. I had a manufacturer already set up with free samples, right? I figured out a way to make it work. You know, it's interesting when I thought about the design for like my razor and that sort of thing. Um, usually folks will go to a design firm. They'll charge you hundreds of thousands of dollars to do it. You know, I found one design firm that was willing to give me free designs. But they said, we'll make these free, but until you pay me $10,000 for it, we'll still own the license for it. So here are the designs. You can show it to whomever. If you raise the money and find $10,000 and you pay us, you own the license for it, right? So I, here I am pitching the idea. I had samples that were kind of acquired similarly. I had designs and I had done all the work with no money, uh-huh. <laughs> right? Uh, no employees or anything of the sorts. So they say, wow, there's a resilience mm-hmm. um, in his ability to do the work uh, yeah. before he needs it. Um, and that combined with their belief in my ability to execute allowed me to get the money. And you were highly time. motivated to get that 10000 Oh, so I, you could... <laughs> I did not play. Yeah, I didn't have it. <laughs> I could imagine. I could imagine. Absolutely. Okay. All right. And so you say to someone... Um, you know, even if it's not directly applicable, you have to have demonstrated your ability to actually deliver. Yeah, you got to build some, credibility. That's that's in, just life. Yeah. You know, you it's, you got to build trust. Um, you got to earn trust. Yes. Um, and I've been fortunate to have been able to do that. So let's talk about scaling and um, and how do you get the customer loyalty? Mm-hmm. I completely, when, when I read your story a while ago, and certainly as I prepared for this conversation, I could relate to the product because my father was one of those That's magic right. shave That's guys. I was too. So oh. when you said the stinky product, I <laughs> oh. knew exactly oh, what you I were talking you about. <laughs> I, I, I know the red label and the blue oh, label magic man. shave, honey. Extra strength. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so um, now let's, let's talk about getting the support from your consumer base because uh, – uh, your dominant consumer base at the beginning clearly were African American men right. and African American women, and now you talk about the fact that you have a diversified consumer mm-hmm. base. Uh, but let's talk about just the the first one That's and right. the support, if you will. And let's talk about what does it mean to really support um, a a product targeted to African American people. Yeah. Uh, how should we be thinking about that? Yeah, so at least for me, I think that there's the motivation for me, and then there's the the kind of response from consumers. So for me, you know, I, I kind of started walking company with this this view that I still believe to be true, that all global culture is led by American culture, which is led by black culture in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Think about food and music and dance, right? Um, and it's amazing to me how even at retail, that cultural influence, that purchasing power isn't as respected as it could be, right? Uh, when I think about myself as a consumer, walking down those aisles, having to go to the ethnic beauty aisle, reaching mm-hmm. at the bottom of the shelf for a package that's dirty, right? A uh, photo on it of a you know fairly old um, black gentleman in a towel drinking a cognac on the packaging, right? Like mm-hmm. that is just completely disrespectful um, to my ability to kind of help influence the culture and spend my money uh, with that retailer. So there's something to be said about companies that have a willingness to celebrate the beauty and the culture, 
to celebrate uh, the purchasing power and to respect our agency uh, in these mm-hmm. transactions. Mm-hmm. And I think Walker & Company is one of, at least as far as I'm aware, even as a consumer, one of the first companies to really respect that in a genuine way. Um, so, you know, when I treat myself as a consumer. You know, my name's on the company. Yes, I'm the yes. CEO of the company, but I'm a consumer of our products. Mm-hmm. Um, when folks reach out or have complaints about it, they know who to come to, whether it's social media or otherwise. Um, you know, you talk about this engagement around keeping customers around. When they come to me in Instagram or Twitter, I respond, mm-hmm. right? They have a one-on-one relationship with me. Um, think about other health and beauty products that you use. What CEOs are doing that? Yes. Right? It's fair point. Um, so I want folks to feel genuinely cared for. Mm-hmm. And it's an experience that we're just not used to. Um, and I try to do things that actually don't scale. And that is what separates us, mm-hmm. right? But, oh. but question, will you always be able to do that? When you get to 100 million users, how are you, Tristan Walker, going to respond? Especially well, if they're all coming at you at the same time. Well, I mean, an honest question is, you know, why do we have to get to 100 million users? No, <laughs> right? no, no, no. Fair. I'm assuming you will. No, no. Fair. <laughs> fair. That's where I'm yeah, going. Yeah. I mean, I think the way I kind of focus on my efforts, I got to focus on what I can control right now. Yes. Right? Okay. Um, and certainly, like, if we are blessed enough to get to that point, then hopefully we build an infrastructure um, that allows for people to not only get to me, but also have a team of folks that people can connect with. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, you know, I shouldn't have to be the person alone. I'm not the person alone that does everything for the business. I have a wonderful team of folks uh, that shares in the same values that I have, mm-hmm. understands how to treat customers in the same way that I do. Um, so at every single touch point with the business, from the design to the smell to the touch to the communication, it's all consistent. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, so they feel um, like they're talking to me just as they're talking to Jamel on my team okay, or okay. Joanne on my team. I just want I just wanted to get <laughs> that course, out there because as you know, you said you do things now that don't scale and that's a differentiator and I and I give you that and I think it's valuable mm-hmm. today. But as as time goes on and you fulfill your aspiration of becoming a, a, mm-hmm. a billion dollar brand, mm-hmm. not not something that's sold before then, mm-hmm. then you won't be able to do some of this mm-hmm. engaging in the same way. Just, well, I'm, I'm unwilling yeah. to compromise yeah. for the thing that we set out to do, mm-hmm. and that's to delight and celebrate. Uh, and if scaling has to come at the sacrifice of that, then it's not worth doing. Ah, okay. And I, I mean that very genuinely and matter-of-factly. The reason we've gotten to this point is because our consumers have trusted us to get to this point. Okay. Um, and I will not betray customers for that. Mm-hmm. Um, they have this pact and a commitment from me um, that if <laughs> we will be unyielding and uncompromising, and if we are, then we'll be rewarded for it. Mm-hmm. If we are not, then they will not spend money with us. And then I have a completely different scaling problem that goes in reverse. (laughs) Absolutely. Let's go back to that question that I asked you at the outset, because I really want to make sure that this is a clear playbook point for the investors that are listening. What advice do you give to these investors about learning about this marketplace and this brand of consumer? Because I would agree with you, there are lots of products that are yet to come to market that could be targeted to African-Americans and um, the Hispanic community. The fastest growing group of female entrepreneurs are of color, and this is a group that has disposable income disproportionately spends disposable income on branded products Mm -hmm. 
and are brand loyal, mm-hmm. and people consistently miss it. Yeah. It's... So what would you say to them? I know you, you're an investor as well, so you would like for them not to know about this because <laughs> they could all be your deals, yeah, and I get that yeah. 100%. Uh, one of the reasons that we're playing in the in yeah. the multicultural uh, yeah. entrepreneurial space and the and the women entrepreneur space because it's a great opportunity. But what do you say to them about getting themselves educated if they don't know about it? Because it's huge. First, there's enough research suggests a number of things. Number one, more diverse teams focusing on more diverse things leads to more profitability. They've read that research. Yeah. They've all gone to business school. They know, right? Second. The demographic shift happening in this country is as fast as anything, right? Um, you know, we will be the majority of this country in 20, 30 years. And frankly, funny enough, we're the majority of the world. I can't tell you how many times folks talk about what we're chasing as a niche opportunity. And I say, well, our customer is the majority of the world. So how is that in any way niche, right? They read these things. They read the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal. And if these folks are reading these things and they are unwilling to understand I am unwilling to continue to try to make them understand. Mm -hmm. There are enough folks out there who really want to be able to participate, and we should be celebrating those folks. Mm -hmm. They should be taking advantage of the arbitrage, Mm -hmm. right? Um, And you can only do so much for certain people, and you just got to focus on what you're doing, right? Otherwise, you're just going to be wasting time. Yep. So the last thing I'm going to ask you before we go to something that's become a tradition on access and opportunity, and that's that's the lightning round. Um, what do you say to entrepreneurs today um, around the resilience point? What did you do? Uh, or you may maybe you didn't have these moments, but what did you do if you had the moments to really try to get yourself all excited again to go back in the ring yeah. and go for it again? I have six values that I use to really guide every decision that I make. Courage, inspiration, respect, judgment, wellness, loyalty. It gives me like a very objective criterion by which I make these decisions. Courage is the first one. And Maya Angelou said this thing that just sticks with me all the time. Courage is the most important value because without courage, you can't practice any other value consistently. Um, You know, you got to have the courage to be respectful to people. Mm -hmm. You got to have the courage to be loyal. You got to have the courage to practice good judgment consistently. Uh, and when I think about how I grew up, right, like born and raised South Jamaica, Queens, right, like welfare and all that, like how did this kid end up getting a full ride to Hoshkiss? How did he get to Stanford Business School? How did he be blessed enough to kind of raise $39 million for this business? Because I had the courage to do things that were uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. I've had the courage and the faith um, to really know that everything will work out. Um, Tyler Perry actually gave me some really, really great advice. I had the great fortune to kind of interview him during fireside chats in three different cities. Amazing entrepreneur, um, one of the highest paid folks in Hollywood. He's homeless, living in his car for some yeah, period of time. Yeah. I'll never forget in L.A., there was one woman during the Q&A session. She raised her hand. She said, Mr. Perry, Mr. Perry, you have to go through all these different trials and tribulations. What do you do to get back up? And what he said is the best advice I've ever had. He said he realized his potential as an entrepreneur when he understood that the trials you go through and the blessings you receive yes. are the exact same things, yes. right? And that really stuck with me, right? Because those trials are just lessons. And as an entrepreneur, it's inevitable <laughs> that you are going to go through these things. Mm-hmm. And for the folks that don't think that they are, they're kidding themselves. And it's about what you do with those lessons, right? Um, so it's given me some ability to pause and think about the things that are coming at me, however good or bad, mm-hmm. and know that there is wonder in my ability to experience those things, whether that be my need to kind of scale the business positively, whether that's 
going through a layoff or a termination, right? I think about these things like this is an opportunity I get to experience that 99% of the world might not be able to, and that's just going to make me stronger. Mm -hmm. And it just requires courage to be able to kind of plow through that wall. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Well, I'm a big fan. I talk about courage a lot, yeah. and I talk about courage around leadership sure. because it does take a lot of courage to show up intentionally Must. as a leader. It takes Must. courage to enforce you know, a diverse and inclusive mm-hmm. environment, mm-hmm. et cetera. So I, I hear you on that. Yeah. Where did your six values come from? I wrote these six values down about two weeks before I raised my first round of funding. Oh, okay. Um, I did it because every single company that I was a part of would always say, here are our corporate values. Yes. And the people saying it could never define them. They could never articulate them. And I said, I'm not going to make this mistake. Being an entrepreneur or CEO is hard enough, right? Like, I want to make sure that I'm doing things objectively, mm-hmm. whether it's, like, who are the people I'm recruiting? Do they share my values? What are the leading questions I'm going to ask in the interview process to get a sense for one's courage or judgment? Uh, when we do semi-annual annual reviews, you're rated against your goal attainment, but also your adherence to the values. So when I'm inside the room or outside the room, we're operating consistently, mm-hmm. right, mm-hmm. Um, to make my job a little bit easier, yeah. right, to make all of our jobs a little bit easier. And it served me well. And frankly, personally, um, it allows me to realize who should I be around? Who shouldn't I be mm-hmm. around? How much time can I win back by focusing on only doing things and being around people that share those same values? Mm -hmm. And it is the best thing that I have ever done. And it was just unfortunate. It took me 30 years to realize that. Yeah, well, but it comes when it's supposed to come at the end of the day. That's right. All righty. I did say that was my last question, but now I have one more. I meant to ask you about building the team because that's another issue that I find entrepreneurs Mm -hmm. struggle with. Mm -hmm. They have a great idea. They've gotten some Mm -hmm. money. Mm -hmm. Now they need more than Mm -hmm. them Mm -hmm. in order to execute. And yet they have no experience. in interviewing people. And so how did you uh, either get up to speed really quickly or did you use a kitchen cabinet? Because the other thing that I advise entrepreneurs to do, if that's not your thing, get some folks who are really good at interviewing or really good at reading people to be your four or five people that you pass your best candidates by Mm -hmm. to get blessing and then you hire them. Because most people make the mistake of trying to hire somebody that's like them when in fact that's that's not what you need. You need something that's not like you. (laughs) That's right. And for a small company, or an emerging company, that's an expensive mistake. That's, I know it. Yeah, okay, <laughs> they're, okay. They're, so talk a little bit about that. The first that. thing I say is do it as slowly as possible. Okay. Um, this is the most important thing that anybody can do for a company. It's the people. Like, that is the asset. Mm-hmm. Um, the second thing I'd say is get rid of this whole word, like, phrase culture fit. I think it is the most destructive word because no one defines what culture fit is. Now, do you feel that this person's a cultural fit because we laugh at the same jokes or we play golf together or this person likes watching this show? Um, that has nothing to do with the business and it's not objective. It's very subjective. Yes, what very. you like, another employee might not. Um, so I go back to these values. Like That's an objective set by which you can you know, make these hires. Is this person courageous? You can ask leading questions to understand that. How can I get at this person's good or bad judgment? Are you loyal? Show me, right? Uh, When I do reference checks, I have something, again, a criterion by which I can check against this. Mm -hmm. So I'm not asking random questions. And if you do that as slowly as possible, you'll realize, yes, some folks may slip through the cracks. But on the margin, you're going to have a core group of people Mm -hmm. that are about the mission of the business, are about um, supporting you, 
um, and you'll have a willingness to support them uh, just as equally. Mm-hmm. And there's a common common understanding. Mm-hmm. And the quicker you can get to that common understanding, the better off you're going to be. And you can only do that objectively. Okay. Do you have your six values posted? I do. They are on our website. Yeah. Um, they have definitions. Yeah. Um, and, and again, I mean this. When we do our kind of interviews and reviews, we write it out, and you have to kind of you know judge against those things. Excellent. So let's get to the lightning round. I'm going to ask you very quick questions, and you just have to tell me which one. Favorite thing about the Bay Area? Weather. Favorite book or magazine? Ovid's Metamorphoses. City or the countryside? City. Favorite album? What's going on? East Coast or West Coast? Oh, that's tough. East Coast. <laughs> <laughs> East Coast. <laughs> Your next business venture that you're most excited about? Um... In the next hundred years for me is Walker and Company. Okay, yeah. okay. Coffee or tea? Uh, tea. Text or talking? Text. Last thing you downloaded? The Nest app. Favorite vacation destination? Jamaica. If you had a talk show, who would you want to be your first guest? Um, Michelle Obama. What's one word that you'd like to use to describe your legacy? Consistent. Okay. Tristan Walker, I say thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. <laughs> Thank you all for listening. I'm Carla Harris, and we'll be back soon with another conversation about access and opportunity.